Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. I just want to send a brief notice to you all starting out that this story contains some details involving violent deaths and the use of one curse word, just in case you're listening with little ones. Listener discretion is advised. Our story today comes from an Ohio Folklore listener in Columbus. I want to thank Leif for telling me about a fabled highway intersection in Claremont County, about 20 miles east of Cincinnati. A little later on in the episode, we'll hear from Leif himself about his own unexplained experience there. For decades, many motorists have claimed to come upon a ghostly figure standing at the crossroad of State Routes 125 and 222. Observers have noticed his clothing, a dark long coat with a hood and dark trousers. They've reported seeing his gloved hands with the fingers cut out. The most telling detail, however, is his shrouded face, hidden, turned away, or in some cases, blackened out by a vacuous blank space. We're talking about the faceless hitchhiker. This section of highway was first laid out in 1831, when the designers of the Ohio Turnpike laid foundations for what would later become State Routes 125 and 222. When it was built, it had a steep, sharp curve at this location. This was to save the time and expense it would have taken to plan a slower and less steep route. Any cost savings, however, would soon be outweighed by the tragic deaths of people and horses alike who couldn't make the sharp turn and toppled over the embankment. Some tales proclaimed that horses in their wagons were seen running straight off the embankment without even trying to make the turn despite their driver's commands. The spot became known locally as Dead Man's Curve, a phrase that's become common in the American lexicon. You can find a Dead Man's Curve in places all over the country, including multiple other locations in our home state of Ohio. For our purposes, we'll delve into the Dead Man's Curve that once existed in Claremont County and the legend of the faceless hitchhiker who seems to have taken residence there. The name is confusing to many, seeing as how the curve itself no longer exists. In the late 1960s, the state finally rerouted the roadway, ostensibly to make it safer. The road was indeed rebuilt and rerouted, completing the project in September 1969. Safety may have been a partial motivation, but I found a newspaper article which documented devastating erosion of the ground beneath the roadway. The soil was being eaten away at the foundation of the asphalt. After 130 years of inaction on the deadly highway, our great state would finally correct its mistake in highway design. My guess is that Mother Nature turned out to be the real catalyst for reconstruction when the road started to crumble away. In any case, the highway was straightened, thus the curve removed, and State Route 125 was widened into four lanes. A ribbon-cutting ceremony held in September 1969 celebrated the achievement and touted claims that the highway was now much safer. Prior to the highway's rebuild in the late 1960s, locals had long known the location as dangerous, as many people lost their lives there. However, claims of sightings of the faceless hitchhiker, the ragged, ghostly man haunting the spot, 
would not begin until a month after the new highway reopened, in October 1969. A deadly accident taking the lives of spirited local teens would devastate small communities in rural Claremont County. The folk legend, as shared around campfires, goes something like this. Early one morning in October 1969, a group of six teenagers commenced a drag race on the newly widened and straightened highway. The group split themselves into two cars, one a 1968 Chevy Impala and the other a 1969 Plymouth Roadrunner. The crash resulted when the vehicles were driving at about 100 miles per hour, demolishing the muscle cars and the occupants inside them. That is, all but one. A young man named Rick walked away from the wreckage unharmed. Shortly after this tragedy, motorists would see a ghostly roadrunner and impella driving straight through the intersection, only to evaporate into thin air as they barreled down the road. These claims were numerous in the immediate weeks that followed the accident, but they soon ceased. Those tales were swallowed up by the even more frequent claims of sightings of the faceless hitchhiker. He appears only between 1.20 and 1.40 in the morning. He's about 6 feet tall and 200 pounds. He's always dressed in long, dark clothing with a hood over his head. Sometimes he stands there, alongside the lonely stretch of highway, as though hitching a ride. Other times, he appears in the middle of the road, in the center of a lane of traffic. I had no difficulties finding claims of first-hand ghost sightings at the seemingly ordinary highway intersection. One woman, for example, let's call her Tina, told me about one unforgettable night out with friends a few years ago. It had been storming for some time, and the rain pelted hard against the car's windows. She and a friend had been sitting in the back seat while another friend was driving. The friend's boyfriend was in the passenger seat. They had enjoyed a night out and were headed home early one morning, driving through the fabled intersection on their way. Tina had known the location as Dead Man's Curve, but stated that she had never heard tell of any ghost sightings there. Before they were even close to it, the driver would spot something in the headlights, in the middle of the road. She would later state that it was the size of a person. It seemed to vanish as soon as she saw it. Assuming her eyes had been playing tricks on her, the driver made no mention of this to the other passengers. However, when they approached the intersection and started making their turn, the four of them witnessed a singular figure standing on the side of the road. Tina states that he was wearing dark pants and a black hoodie, with the hood pulled over his head, casting his face in shadow. She states that they got a pretty good view of him, because they had to drive slowly on account of the punishing wind and rain. The four of them wondered aloud as to why he'd be standing out there in the deluge on a dark stretch of highway. Even more than this, however, they noticed that his loose-fitting clothes remained still against the blowing winds. It was this detail that freaked Tina out the most. The unnaturalness of the whole scene set a bit of panic within the car, as the four of them rustled to make sense of what they were seeing. It was then that the driver acknowledged that she'd seen him standing in the middle of the road moments before. Frazzled, they did what most of us do these days when faced with something we don't know or can't understand. They googled it. 
Within seconds, they were reading several other accounts of strange sightings of the faceless man. Tina was terrified and intrigued all at the same time. The group of them would go back to the spot on multiple occasions, searching for a second glimpse. They'd even waited for nighttime storms to recreate the scene. They would never see him again. Another woman, let's call her Sandy, came to tears on reading stories posted online about the faceless hitchhiker. She had never understood what she witnessed one night during her teenage years. She and her mother had been driving home to the unincorporated town of Saltaire, which is about six miles south of Dead Man's Curve on State Route 22. She saw a faceless stranger, a man in dark clothing, standing on the side of the road at the fabled intersection. She saw him but didn't say anything to her mother, assuming she had seen the same thing since she was driving. As the short drive continued, Sandy would see him again, up ahead of them, standing motionless and in the same dark clothing. She was petrified with fear and again chose not to speak about it, thinking that talking about what she was seeing would make it even more real. She hoped she was just tired and that her eyes were playing tricks on her. Sandy's mother would pull over at a small convenience store in Nicholsville to pick up a few things. This tiny store is still located at the intersection where State Route 222 crosses Bethel New Richmond Road. While waiting in the car, the faceless man appeared once more to Sandy. He was standing on the other side of the intersection. Only this time, his arm was outstretched and pointing down Bethel New Richmond Road toward the town of Bethel. When her mother returned to the car, Sandy was in a panic. She demanded that her mother turn in the direction the faceless stranger had been pointing, instead of continuing their normal route home on 222. Her mother was shocked at the intensity of Sandy's demands, but complied. It was only after they'd made some distance that Sandy burst forth with the details of what she'd been seeing. Sandy and her mother were not ones for believing in ghosts, so they kept the story to themselves. It was only after many years when Sandy came across stories of the faceless hitchhiker online that she realized the importance of her experience that night. Another woman, let's call her Maria, recalls an incident from early 2005. She was traveling west on 125 around 1 or 2 in the morning. She was headed to a party in Amelia, having left her home in Bethel. As she approached the 222-125 intersection, she began fiddling with the radio to find a better station. When she looked back up to the road, she saw what she assumed to be a homeless man standing in the middle of her lane. He was wearing a long brown coat and was looking downward so that his face was not visible. He was holding his hands in front of him with his palms facing his chest. He was wearing dark gloves with the ends of the fingers cut out. As she rapidly approached the intersection, he made no movement to avoid her car. She swerved left, but it was too late to avoid him. She finally brought her car to a stop on the other side of the road. Panicked, she began searching for him and found nothing, 
She had driven right through him. There had been no feeling of impact, no blood, no indication of what had just happened. It's hard to imagine the mix of emotions she must have felt at that time, first assuming she had killed someone, and then finding that that someone seemingly did not exist. Maria freaked out in her own words and sped off. When she arrived at the party, she stammered to explain just what she'd been through. It was then that her friends told her about the local legend of Dead Man's Curve and the spirit known to haunt it. She first thought her friends were just teasing her, but confirmed the details later when she looked up the legend for herself. Maria believes the spirit is evil and that his intent is to shock drivers to cause them to crash. She advises everyone to avoid the area altogether. This is only a small sample of the many first-hand ghostly experiences that random motorists have reported since late 1969. But I can't wrap up this segment of the episode without letting you hear Leif's own story. As I mentioned earlier, Leif is an Ohio folklore listener who kindly brought my attention to this unique story. Although he now lives in Columbus, he grew up in Claremont County. After seeing the faceless hitchhiker for himself one night, he became intrigued by what it all means. It's, uh, it's a very small town, um, Amelia, and I grew up kind of on the edge of it, uh, kind of where the Amelia School District meets the New Richmond School District, and uh, went to New Richmond schools my whole life. And it was a story that I think was kind of a part of the public consciousness so much in, in my town that folks didn't really, it wasn't that we didn't talk about it, like, oh, we don't talk about that. It was more that, you know, it was just one of those things that everybody knew about and everybody kind of heard from their grandpa or something like that. And uh, I think the first time the story came to my attention, uh, because my family was transplanted to the area, um, I had found it in a book. Okay. I think I was, gosh, I must have been in middle school. And I took it into my teacher and said, hey, look at this cool story I found about our area. Um, it was this book called Weird Ohio. A lot of your listeners have probably seen it or have it on their shelf. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was just enough in that, there was just enough detail in that book to kind of, kind of whet the listener's appetite to not really give you a ton of information. I'm familiar with that book series. Um, they do have a way of just kind of introducing the topic generally and then not going to much depth. Um, so that's where so, you first had heard about it yourself? Right. So then I took it to uh, to my history teacher and said, hey, look at this cool bit of local folklore. And she had heard of it. And uh, most of my classmates were like, you haven't heard of the Facebook Hitchhiker? Oh, my dad told me about that. Or, oh, my uncle has seen that. And uh, at that point, I realized I was kind of out of the loop. So then my teacher thought it was interesting enough that uh, we ought to do a little unit on some Ohio folklore. And that's when I became aware that my old science teacher, Mr. Jackson, had seen it. Okay. uh, Because he was speaking in a documentary uh, that our teacher decided to show to us. And the whole thing just kind of... I kind of sat at the back of my mind for a while as one of those cool 
cool local things, but I have the kind of parents who aren't going to let me go up and wait for it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. But that's really cool that you had a teacher that was so open-minded to this sort of thing uh, and introduced it to your class. That way I can see where a lot of kids would uh, really be intrigued by that. And so... By the time you had your own experience, uh, you had heard about the legend? Definitely. Oh. So, we can say for sure, uh, I am not an independent confirmer. <laughs> okay. I didn't have a you know, confirmation bias on my side or anything like that. But I had a friend who, after we had graduated from high school, her folks had kind of picked up and moved a little outside uh, our usual area, and they ended up in relation to my house living just past that intersection called Dead Man's Curve. Okay. And so, one night, as we were driving home, I think I think we were coming home from one of those Rocky Horror Picture things uh-huh. down in Cincinnati, if I remember correctly. Okay. And I was taking a turn driving my friend's car, had some food at the show. And as we were going by, um, it was about a little past 1 a.m., and I could see this figure on the side of the road. And I thought to myself, that that looks a lot like a baseball hitchhiker. And as we came closer, I could see, you know, dark top, white pants, hoodie up, thumb out, and, uh, I always kind of fancied myself one of those intrepid explorer ghost hunter types, but when I thought I was scared, yeah, I was scared shitless. I, uh, I, and I was kind of disappointed in myself because, you know, I had, I had always fancied myself the type that would pull up and get a closer look and take a picture and be ready to tell the world, and I, I was I kind of was thinking about some of the things I had heard from kids at school who said, oh, well, you know, so-and-so said it threw rocks at their car, and so-and-so said they hit it, and then when they got up, there was nothing there, and I I just drove on by. I remember being overwhelmed by, um, like an adrenaline rush, almost, like the kind of adrenaline rush that you get when you're in a store and you hear a loud bang and you don't know what it is. So it's almost like an instinctual, yeah, like an instinctual fear response kind of a thing? It was definitely an instinctual fear response. Now, um, do you remember which direction you were headed and exactly where on the highway you saw this? Yeah, yeah, I could tell you almost with a pinpoint. We were coming, we're headed west um, on the Ohio Turnpike 125, um, and we saw it right where 222 crosses 125. That's, that's the spot where pretty much everybody sees it. So he was standing on, like, the right side of the road? Yes, thumb out, um, facing the road. And when I try to picture it in my head, I he's kind of... This is an adjective I would usually apply to the fabric, but he seems sort of diaphanous. Huh. Can you try to describe 
that a little more? I know that's probably, it's a hard thing to put into words, I imagine. Yeah, um, all that sort of, um, you know how like a really fine fabric kind of subtly ripples in the breeze if you walk behind it while it's on the clothesline? Yeah. Um, there was almost a, a shimmeriness to him like that, like, uh, like the image I was looking at wasn't entirely solid. I see. Yeah, it's wild. It's it's the sort of story that really grabs my attention because I mean I I, I consider myself a, a sort of an optimistic skeptic, but like in the sense that you know I, I would like for a lot of these things to be real, and I think in some cases they are, but I think there's probably a pretty rational explanation for the vast majority of the stories that get tossed around, but. When I hear people talk about this one, I hear people who are willing to put their name out there and say, I saw this, who are not typically imaginative folks. And I hear people talk about it who wouldn't have known about it before. So now that we've heard a great deal about the legendary ghost sightings of the faceless hitchhiker, Let's dig into the history of what can be known about this seemingly ordinary intersection of state highways. We know that the roadway was very poorly designed as it was originally constructed. Fatalities occurred at the notorious Dead Man's Curve with some regularity. For example, I came across a 1954 article about a 36-year-old mother of four who died two hours after a head-on collision at the intersection. Another story from 1965 detailed the death of a 27-year-old woman who'd been a passenger of a car that lost control on the curve. She'd been thrown out of the vehicle and then crushed by it. These records underscore the dangerousness of that spot. It paints state officials as inept and careless in their design and management of a piece of highway that was known to everyone as deadly. As I mentioned earlier, it seems that after 130 years of existence, Dead Man's Curve was only corrected when erosion ate away at the highway's foundations. Sometimes, Mother Nature convinces us to do what perhaps should have been done all along. Maybe that's why the state was in such a celebratory mood when the project was finished in September 1969. It seems no good deed, though goes unpunished. Only a month after the newly widened highway was reopened, a tragic accident would take the lives of a group of local teenagers. After scouring local newspaper articles of the time, I finally discovered details of the accident that happened at the intersection of 125 and 222 on October 18, 1969. Let's delve into the rest of the historical account. I'd like to introduce you to two young men, Bill Caskey and Danny Dobbs. In 1969, they were both 18 years old. Earlier that spring, they were two of a class of 173 Amelia High School seniors who had graduated. Bill had played football all four years and had the build to show for it. Danny, on the other hand, had a thinner build. He looked something akin to a skinny Leonardo DiCaprio. He didn't make the team his freshman or sophomore years. He was advised instead to take part in intramurals to build skills and stamina. 
His efforts would pay off during football tryouts his junior year. He made the team. Both Bill and Danny would play football their junior and senior years. That final year, at season's end, the varsity would win only four of nine games, but that included a 56 to nothing shutout against New Richmond. This was a small consolation compared to the junior varsity, who'd gone undefeated that year and were crowned with the county championship. In the wee small hours of the morning on October 18, 1969, these two young men were headed north on Highway 222, approaching the intersection of 125. From accounts gathered in high school yearbooks, these two were friends. They both started working at the Williamson Heating Company in downtown Cincinnati shortly after graduating. Bill assembled heating devices, and Danny worked in the office. Perhaps they both finished a shift on that Friday, October 17, 1969, and decided it was time for a night out. These young men had embarked on an adult life, working for a living, and maybe they thought they deserved some fun. Whatever the reason, in the early morning hours, Bill was driving his 1962 Chevy Impala Coupe, and Danny was in the passenger seat. At the same time, another vehicle with two occupants was headed west on 125. 19-year-old Tim Pope was driving his brand-new 1969 Plymouth Roadrunner. In the passenger seat sat Connie Jo Connor, a 14-year-old brunette with shiny straight hair. She just started her freshman year at Hammersville High School. Hammersville was also where Tim was from. This tiny town still holds a population of about 550 people, the same as it did that day in 1969. Connie actually lived in Feesburg, an even tinier, unincorporated town less than four miles outside of Hammersville. Despite exhaustive searching, I was not able to confirm the relationship between Tim and Connie. They may have been friends, relatives, or dating partners. We may never know. What we do know is that in the early morning hours of October 18, 1969, they were both headed west on 125 and about to pass through the 222 intersection. Since 125 had been straightened and widened to four lanes, its motorists had been given the right of way when it came to intersections. Tim would have seen a flashing yellow light indicating caution as he approached the 222 intersection. Bill, on the other hand, would have seen a flashing red light indicating his need to stop for oncoming traffic. The Ohio Highway Patrol would conclude that Bill failed to yield the right of way as he continued north through the intersection, colliding with the roadrunner. Both vehicles were moving at highway speed. The impact was devastating. According to death certificates, Connie had died at the scene from a crushed skull. Tim, her driver, would be the only survivor. He was transported by ambulance to the Brown County Hospital for multiple injuries and released after two days. Bill would be pronounced dead at the scene. His neck had been broken on impact. Danny, on the other hand, would be found clinging to life by paramedics of the Amelia Life Squad. He'd suffered massive trauma throughout his head and body and was bleeding profusely. An ambulance would transport him to the University of Cincinnati Hospital, where emergency staff would work to save him. Their efforts would prove unsuccessful. 
He was pronounced dead at 5.40 p.m. that day. Joint services for Danny and Bill were held the following Tuesday at an Amelia funeral home. They were both buried in Mount Moriah Cemetery. I always find the differences between the myth of a story and factual details intriguing. This legend, as it's told by locals, centers on a group of bulletproof teenagers tempting fate by drag racing their American muscle cars down a highway built for safety. It's a tidy encapsulation of everything wild, rebellious, and no-stemming about America's youth at that time in the late 1960s. It was a time for pushing against so many boundaries. The sightings of the faceless hitchhiker serves as a cautionary tale about the dangers of bravado and reckless abandon. Here's a guy who only cared about power and speed, doomed to roam the place where he died, doomed to beg others for a ride that's never coming. By contrast, the facts, as I've come to gather them, are plainly so much more sad than that. I could feel the sadness grow as I continued scouring documents that remain from their actual lives, including death certificates, autopsy reports, and yearbook photos. These kids were young. I mean, young. I have to admit, it got to me a bit, as I came to see them as the people they once were. It brings home how fragile we all are, and how quickly everything can be erased in the fraction of a second. There were details that stopped me in my tracks along the way. Reports from first-hand sightings of the faceless hitchhiker are consistently reported between 1.20 and 1.40 a.m. This is true of the incidents that I referred to in the course of this podcast episode. One of my most uncanny realizations was seeing the time of the accident on the death certificates listed at 1.20 a.m. Can that just be a coincidence? Of course. It's just that after I read further into the details of Bill's death certificate, his actual time of death was indicated at 1.30. One might assume, if you're a believer in ghosts and in the multiple sightings of the faceless hitchhiker in particular, that the spectral figure so often seen at this fabled intersection is in fact Bill Caskey the young man whose neck was broken on impact at 1.20 a.m. to be pronounced dead 10 minutes later. Are we to believe that Bill is stuck between this world and the next, looking for a way forward? I pondered on this until receiving a copy of the autopsy report for Danny. It's nine pages long and provides exhaustive details about the numerous bodily injuries he incurred. The ultimate conclusion, however, was that the primary cause of death was massive trauma to the head and face. Trauma and bleeding in the brain was the likely causal factor in his death. What caught my attention as well, however, were detailed descriptions of injuries across his face, including a dozen lacerations, some up to two and a half inches long. It's hard not to pay attention to a detail like that when writing an episode about the faceless hitchhiker. I'd like to take a moment to clarify the difficulty of presenting a folklore topic that's this recent in history, 20th century history anyway. I want to acknowledge that the people who lost their lives were sons and daughters and siblings and friends. Some, I'm sure, have family members who are still living, 
And it's important to remember that as we contemplate the meaning of these similar yet unexplained experiences by so many unrelated people at one location. So you might think that our story is coming to a close here, and for the most part, it is. At least that's what I've been able to understand about the faceless hitchhiker so far. However, in the course of my research, I stumbled on a few unusual sightings of a different sort. There are claims of another ghost less than a quarter mile south on Highway 222 from our fabled intersection. Over the past 20 years, some have described seeing the translucent figure of a young woman standing on the edge of the road near the creek as the highway winds south around gentle curves. She's said to be wearing a purple shirt and that her hair is dark and long. After finding a couple similar first-hand accounts of this ghostly woman, I decided to look further into what I could find. In October 1999, the Claremont County Sheriff's Office made a public request for information. They found the body of a woman along Ulrey Creek on August 31, 1999. The investigation they'd been pursuing on the murder had no leads. They'd taken to publishing public requests in the newspapers for information. Lena Bainham was an exotic dancer from the Classy Cat nightclub in Covington, Kentucky. She was last seen alive when she ordered two hamburgers and a Coke before walking out of a White Castle at 3.48 a.m. in Covington on August 21, 1999. Security camera footage showed that Lena took only six minutes to eat and then headed out of the restaurant on foot alone. Ten days later... Her body would be found by a fisherman just south of Dead Man's Curve. It was partially clothed, badly decomposed, and sealed in a plastic bag, but visible from Rolling Acres Drive. Police surmised that whoever dumped her body had been in a hurry as it was not well concealed. That, or perhaps the person had somehow wanted her body to be found. Lena's family members had read media reports that included descriptions of the body and pieces of jewelry they realized it was Lena. At the time, investigators believed that she'd been killed elsewhere and that her body was dumped in the wooded area off Highway 222, just south of the 125 intersection. The officers on the case put forth great effort to find a young man known to be her acquaintance. This man had dropped her off at the White Castle restaurant that night. They released composite sketches of his face and offered a reward of $1,000 for any tip leading to an arrest. The case would remain unsolved for years. Law enforcement entities would place the composite sketch of her male acquaintance in the Tri-State's most wanted list. By 2001, Lena's family began voicing their outrage to the press, stating that they believed the police were keeping them in the dark about what leads and information they had. The case would go cold and stay that way until an October day in 2004 when the Cincinnati Inquirer reported on the arrest of one Michael B. Adams of Cincinnati. Police claimed having evidence that the 59-year-old was connected to Lena's death. Inexplicably, I could find no follow-up reports in the media after Michael Adams' arrest. A review of court records, however, revealed that he would be charged with reckless homicide and involuntary manslaughter. 
The date of the offense was listed as August 21st, the same day she had been seen at the White Castle. Adams would be tried in April 2005 and sentenced a month later. He would be found guilty of a lesser charge, negligent homicide, which is a first-degree misdemeanor, and he was sentenced to six months in the county jail. Although I can't be totally sure from the most basic of information available on the case online, it seems that Lena had died of a drug overdose while in the presence of Michael Adams. In a panic, he dumped her body at the spot where it was eventually found by the fishermen. A couple of weeks after the sentencing, Adams' attorney filed a motion to mitigate the sentence. The motion was granted. And again, it's difficult to tell for certain from the only most basic of legal jargon available from the case online, but it appears as though he served probation through the fall of 2006 for the offense. Whether the apparition that's sometimes seen at this spot is that of Lena Bainham, we'll never know for sure. This concludes today's episode on the faceless hitchhiker at Dead Man's Curve in Claremont County. And before I formally close the episode, I want to let you know that Ohio Folklore has its first speaking engagement. I know this is way in advance, but for those of you in Ohio's northeast corner, I'll be traveling to Avon Public Library for a presentation around Halloween time, October 24th to be exact. Many thanks to the Ohio Folklore listeners there who've reached out to me. And for the rest of you, I'll be sure to remind you more about it when the time comes near. If you've enjoyed listening, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore's website at ohiofolklore.com. And Ohio Folklore is also easily found on Facebook. If you have a legend you'd like featured in a future episode, please let me know. And as always, keep wondering. <laughs>